Hi, and welcome to the Saxophone Academy podcast. I'm Dr. Wally Wallace. And I'm Dr. Susan Fancher. And today we are talking about... Well, Alfred Dessenklow. Some fantastic music, the dangers of playing low B. And answering some of your questions as we dive into the mailbag. Awesome. Hope you enjoy the episode. All right, so, so now yeah, for realsies. Uh, for realsies, yeah. For, for realsies. We've got a couple of cool things to talk about today. Of always. Uh, we're we're, we're going to be talking about Alfred. Alfred. Who was the butler to Batman. <laughs> exactly. And also a composer. Do we know Alfred's last name in the Batman comics? I don't think so. Isn't it just always Alfred? I just assume it was the butler. The that butler. might be slightly insulting. I don't know. So, I mean, so, he, he was very good at his job and very important, actually. As was <laughs> Alfred Dazenclo. Alfred Dazenclo. So we're going to start talking about a composer, a classical composer, um, that what made you think of this? You wanted to talk about this, and I was like, yes. But what, what yeah. brought this up to you? Well, it's so, it's so funny. So every day I get in my email inbox a thing called the Duke Daily because I'm on the faculty at Duke. I'm part of the Duke community. And, you know, probably 99.9999, too many nines. People just go, yeah, whatever, and move on with their lives. <laughs> but for some reason, I'm one of that 0.000000001% of people who actually click on the email and I scan it. And the wonderful thing is whoever puts that together at Duke always has a beautiful big headline and a picture that goes with each little article. And so I just skim I, it. I just skim it. I like it. pictures. Pictures are good. That always helps me. Yeah, they attention. catch my eye. Right. Literally. <laughs> so I'm scanning this email and, you know, down in the email, I see, I always like look to see what's going on in the Duke Chapel because I'm, I'm a big fan of the music that happens in the Duke Chapel. It's such a, a gorgeous space. Gorgeous space. And I skim this little blurb that's always just like, a sentence to max. So it's perfect for like 21st century attention spans, which are, wait, look, squirrel, you know. Wait, <laughs> <It was> where? <laughs> so short. And I see that they're going to do um, an All Saints Day Requiem Mass by Alfred Desenclo on November 1st for their, their All Saints Day service. And I'm like, what? Double take? Alfred Desenclo wrote something besides the two pieces for saxophone that I know of? You know what I would have said? I was completely I said, intrigued. What? What is All Saints Day? Oh. <laughs> it's the day after All Hallows Eve, which is Halloween. Oh, I knew that. So Halloween is the eve of All Saints Day. Yeah, not being a filthy pagan, I didn't know that. Well, so. you should have known these pagan things of Halloween. I do. I need to learn well, my pagan traditions. So in in you know my faith tradition on All Saints Day, we remember the people in particular who have passed away in the in the past year, but all of the saints, all of the good. Oh, People, so this, this isn't a Halloween thing. I'll, it's not really oh, a Halloween okay. thing. Never mind. It, it is was, actually a religious thing, All, okay, all I, Saints Day. Yeah, I'm not going to make yeah. fun of it anymore. Well, don't make fun of okay. it, no. So don't, anyway. I, I, I thought this was like a Halloween thing. <laughs> but it's a lovely service. Um, a lot of churches have it on the Sunday after November 1st, the first Sunday after that, which was this past Sunday. Um, but a lot of churches will have a special service on November 1st, first to remember the, the people in our families or communities that have passed away in the recent okay. year, but in many years past. And of course, coming out of the pandemic, it's, you know, there's a lot of loss to So it sounds kind of like of. The, the Mexican Day of the Dead, it's but kind of, without the cool costumes. Right. So, <laughs> But in this case, with really gorgeous music, and you can imagine using a Requiem Mass by, you know, Mozart or one of those 
long dead composers. Now, Alfred Desenclo is deceased, but not that long ago. He died in 1971. Okay. I think I got that date right. Yeah, born in 1912. So not fresh, but not like Mozart. But I mean, you know, no. this is kind of a nice follow-up to what we talked about last time with the music of um, Charles Kirkland, that some of these composers who were sort of ignored, mm-hmm. um, not completely ignored, but didn't really get in a lot of people's minds these days, their fear attention because of the way modernism sort of took over academia and took over the music world. So some of these composers who wrote um, romantic style music, but with but with tonal language that was influenced by modernism, but influenced by jazz chords and things like that right. in the 20th century, mid 20th century composers who were you know, kind of dismissed because they didn't jump on the modernism bandwagon. Some of them are being quote unquote rediscovered now. And here was just another example that happened right on the heels of that. We had just had that conversation right. when I saw this email. Same day. Yeah. Same day. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It's fun. So it was really cool. I was like, go figure. I know. I and know. another French dude. <laughs> now, let's talk about a couple of the well-known things yeah. that saxophonists should know about. Yes. So we'll talk about the the crucible uh opening here in a minute, but you sent me um, a recording that we're going to listen to. Um, let's listen to just a minute of how beautiful the music of Alfred Davidson Clow is. So, Sue, what is this? So, this is the Quatuor, the Quartet by Alfred Davidson Clow for saxophone quartet. So beautiful. Yeah, it's one of our greatest standard classical saxophone quartet pieces. And I know what you mean about um, the kind of neoclassical, neoromantic. I, I think of like post-impressionist. There's there's the, the the rich harmony of like the impressionistic composers. Yeah. But um, you know, then we get back into counterpoint and the and this other kind of writing. Yeah. Uh, but what I I love about this is it well not one of the reasons I love it, but it's interesting. It's fiendishly difficult to play well. Yeah, the and ensemble think, is tricky too. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, the the harmony is yes, like post nineteen twenties, but it's not uh, kind of abandoned by academia because it's not the new avant garde sound. No, it's there's not no extended yep. techniques. Nope. I don't think there, are there. There's not a note of altissimo in nope. the thing. To no altissimo. No multiphonics. Nope. Nary a slap tongue if you're doing it right. Nope. <laughs> but <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> that's a good point. It's still fiendishly difficult to play well. Yeah, and it's coming out of that string quartet tradition, right? Yeah, the classical string quartet tradition of, you know, Beethoven and, you know. Well, because you and I are both just deeply in love with the saxophone quartet, we've given yeah. some of the best and lost some of the best years of our lives. Just <laughs> saxophone quartet. Indeed. My, whenever I, I think like, hey, I think I'm going to start a saxophone quartet, my wife like looks like traumatic. Like, <laughs> do you remember the fights you had with oh, the old one? Oh, it can be tricky. All chamber music ensembles, it can be a little tricky. Right. Yeah, so Interpersonal stuff, yep. So we were talking earlier, the difference between or, or an interesting juxtaposition of string quartet and saxophone quartet is that unlike the string quartet, we are four of the exact same instrument, just pitched differently. Yeah. And so does that create some interesting opportunities for the saxophone quartet that we hear in this days on Clo? Do you think? I think so. I think you can pass a line off from one saxophone to the other. And, and if it's done well, it's not easy to do it this well, but quartets these days are so good at a young age. If you're passing off the line really smoothly, you can't tell when one saxophone ends and the other one picks up. Right. So you can create a really long range 
over instruments. And I think string quartets can do that too, but I think our timbres are more probably more homogeneous even than the string quartet. Even more so, yeah. yeah. It's it's hard to make a, a cello sound like a viola. Yeah. Um yeah. yeah. I mean also just getting the viola player to play in time is, is now is stop. A it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Some of my best friends I, are violas. I would love no, we have a common friend, Scott Rawls, uh local, Oh my gosh, yeah. He's um, just a viola yeah, guy. He's amazing. I played Hindemith. Oh my god. The Hindemith uh Hecklephone trio with him. Did you play that with Scott Rawls? It was oh, like a master class. That's a great piece, in, actually. In just musicality. He's yeah. so He's amazing. He's amazing. Anyway, point. Yeah. Let's let's quit. Yeah. Let's yeah, quit yeah, complimenting yeah. violists. Yeah, really. Um, so <laughs> let's start. Let's take a look at this. This kind of the 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 homogeneity of possibilities of the successful yeah. quartet in the second movement. What's the title of the second movement? I think it's Andante. If only we okay. had a reference wait, right, literally in wait, front of us. Literally in front of me. <laughs> second movement doesn't close. Andante. Andante. Oh, I was right. Now I got egg all over my face. That's okay. Well, I had to it's, have breakfast. It's so, you know, typical first movement, allegro, right. non troppo, which means not too much. So fast, not too much. And the second movement, Andante, Andante. which is basically we translate to a walking tempo. And let's listen to the uh, a very fine saxophone quartet. Yeah. Trade this line. Yeah. And that beautiful, uh, I was about to say string quartet, the beautiful saxophone <laughs> quartet is? <laughs> That's the Roland Phones saxophone quartet from a CD that we made way back in 1992. 1992? Holy cow, I must have been 12. Grunge was all the rage. <laughs> Pearl Jam was hitting the scene. Yeah. Um, if it wasn't acid washed, we weren't wearing it. Yeah. So the Roland Phones, you played soprano saxophone. That I was did. Uh, Dr. Fancher on soprano saxophone yeah. on, on this recording. Uh, how did you get hooked up with the Roland Phones? Who were the Roland Phones? The Roland Phones are still going strong. They are a Swedish saxophone quartet. It was formed by uh, four female Swedish saxophonists who were students together at uh, Music School on it's called the Music Academy <laughs> in Stockholm, Sweden. And it's funny, they started this group just playing together at school. So many chamber music groups start just going to college together and they're they're playing quartet, string quartet, wind quintet. A lot of groups that right. are really famous just started as college students doing chamber music together as part of their studies. And one day they decided to just go out, take take their music stands out to some uh, square, town square, um, I think it was Herkatoriad in, in Stockholm, and they took their music stands and their music out there and their clips, and they played street music, we call it, or, you know, busked, you know, to, and put a case there and made some money and went and had lunch. And then they thought, wow, this is pretty cool. People are, like, putting money in our case for just, like, coming out here and playing <laughs> our, our schoolwork, basically. Right. And so after a while, they decided, well, this is – kind of a pain to be lugging music and music stands. So then they got a bunch of lighter style music and uh, went, played it from memory out there. And then they started like adding a little bit of kind of light choreography, dancing around a little bit because yeah. it was just kind of fun to make a little cute show of it. And people kept throwing money. And then like, I think the story is one day somebody came up to them and like asked them if they'd come and play at a company party and paid them real money to go 
place. So, you know, then they thought, okay, well, they started getting some kind of spiffy clothes. So they kind of created this whole act and they had a, a showtime act that they would do for company parties. And that was their bread and butter for years. They would do sit down classical concerts with music and everything, but they had, you know, some tangos and some light jazz things and just right. popular tunes and things like that arranged for them by some friends. And actually Nieta Norian, who's the berry player in the group, is a really fine arranger. She made a lot of arrangements. So they had about 45 minutes to an hour worth of music that was memorized and they would go do company parties and, and made a living doing this. And so when I, you know, they were looking for um, a soprano saxophone player at one point, Nieta Noreen was visiting Fred Hemke, who she had taken some summer classes with Fred Hemke. So she was visiting him in Chicago at Northwestern and Word of mouth, I heard they were looking for a soprano player, so I sent a, yes, cassette tape and got offered to, you know, come over and join the group. And so I played with them for a couple of years, and one of the things we did, lots of touring and lots of fun adventures, wonderful musicians and just wonderful people. Stockholm's a great city. It's a wonderful country, and one of the things, one of the things we did was make an entire CD of music on the um, Philips label for Polygram Sferia, which is Sweden. That's yeah. fantastic. And we it, recorded the Dozen Clo, which is one of my favorite standard repertoire pieces for sax quartet. And to our knowledge, this is not digitally digitally available. I couldn't find it on Spotify. So I'm gonna I'm gonna um talk to my friends and see, hey, is there any way we can nudge the the record company to get that right. available? Because it's I mean, it's you know, we were all we were young, we were in our twenties, but I gotta say, you know, I go back and listen to it. It's not bad. It's very fine playing. <laughs> and it's beautifully recorded. I mean, the, oh. the mastering and all of that, I would have to look in the label to see who actually did it. But it's very beautifully recorded. Yeah. And, and that matters. And the auto-tuning is not too much. They did just <laughs> enough. I'm kidding. And so let's... I love I this love quartet. Yeah. I wish I could have auto-tuned when I play all Don't the Don't think I haven't tried it in my own... When it you, never sounds right, yeah, does it? No. Yeah. No, believe me. <laughs> um, so funny. Well, our question from the mailbag is dealing with intonation. I will say, so my YouTube channel just crossed two million views, and we'll say if you're playing, in, if you're, if you're playing in, with that many people watching, if you're playing in a note out of tune, they let you know <laughs> often. So yeah, isn't that funny? It's so much no, easier. It's, it's 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 very easy though to listen to something and be like, oh, that's out of tune, but you know, to actually play perfectly in tune all of the time, that's. It's really hard. I'll get. I <laughs> it's guess. Much easier I don't to know. Hear it in no, other it's people. it's a tough thing, <laughs> especially when I what I do is so publicly when I'm just trying to teach. But so, I mean, my well, yeah. my, my therapist has a therapist now. It's <laughs> so well, you know, you got to just let it roll off, man. Right? Yeah. I stopped really paying a lot of attention to reviews a long time ago because I decided that. If I got too excited about the good reviews, then I would have to also pay attention to the bad ones. <laughs> I don't adopt that belief. I, I say that if you believe the positive reviews, you have to believe the negative ones. <laughs> Says who, Stephen King? Says who? Exactly. Yeah. I'm just going to take you. You live in stuff. your weird little New England town. I'll just read the positive ones. Thank you very much. It is so much easier to find fault than to it do is. good. Well, it is. Really, let's find some more yeah. good with yeah. um, the third movement. Tell us about the third movement of this. Oh, this piece. so the beginning of this. Movement is so fun, you know, it's da, 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 da. you know, it's just got a lot of energy. And listen to these chords. I mean, they are thick, they are rich, and there's a lot of jazz um inspiration in this piece. And there was in the in the requiem I heard too. By oh, really? The way. I, I have not heard the requiem. A lot of, yeah. Um, there's some there's a terrific recording out there on the on the interwebs. Um, I'll send you a link if you want to play a little bit of the Requiem. On the internet? 
That thing's still around? <laughs> All right. If you say so, Sue, I'll take a look. There's a YouTube recording of, of the first couple of movements of it, and I can send you a suggestion for a little clip if you want to put that in. Yeah. So, okay, let's, well, with the power of editing, let's take just a little listen to the Requiem. I'm going to say that was beautiful, but I have no idea because that was added after we recorded this. It is gorgeous. And if you just heard a little silence, then that means we couldn't find it. Uh, <laughs> so talk about the, the third movement. So of the, the third uh, yeah. movement of the quartet, the saxophone quartet, um, you know, it's just got this opening. It's very rhythmic. And um, when it gets to the main part of the pieces, very badly sung. Sorry for that. You'll hear it better on the recording. Let's listen. jazz e and it's definitely taking advantage of this this uh association between the saxophone and jazz music at right you know the middle of the 20th it's, century it's it's the 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 parisian interpretation of american <laughs> jazz which is johnny goes to school there you the go kind of it kind of has that jaunty johnny has a nutritious lunch pack it's happy go lucky it's so happy it's almost yeah. what we would call in uh sweden we used to refer to glad jazz so happy jazz happy jazz <laughs> We don't do that anymore. I know. We have to no, be serious oh, about all no, things. No, <laughs> no. Branford Marsalis still has like a party with a jazz quartet when we did that CD. So jazz can still be happy, but yeah. mostly it's a lot of- It's very serious. Very serious. Very high, <laughs> high art. So on the, the other subject, so absolutely get your get your, your saxophone quartet together, kids, and play some Alfred Dayson close. Spend more yeah. time than you think. You'll look at the part like, oh, this is no big deal. Getting the people to play it together. Yeah, the individual parts are not that easy. And then to get everybody to to mesh those mm-hmm. um, 16th note runs where people come in on different parts of the beat, it's tricky. It's Very worth tricky. the work, though. Yeah. Very much worth oh, the I work. I love this recording. So, um, Thank you. I don't think I could put a link to the recording because it's not available. We'll, yeah. we'll talk to Phillips. Yeah, I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to talk to my friends in the Rolling Phones. I'm going to see them in two weeks. Oh, yeah? I am. Well, say hi for me. Then I will. Volume. But, um, but they've heard you. They'll rattle on about nonsense. They listen to and, you and me rattle on about nonsense. And they still talk to you. Good for them. Yeah. So let's talk about, <laughs> so imagine this. Still on the subject of Days and Chloe. You're a, you're a serious concert saxophonist. You're young. You're hungry. You're below yes. the age of 30 and you're studying at an advanced degree somewhere. Yeah. You send a letter. You wire money to Dinant Belgium. You get on a plane, several playing several thousand dollars get with a host family and you're there to compete against the greatest concert saxophonist in the world. Yeah. In the Dinant yeah, the International Adolf Sax- Saxophone Competition. competition yeah. You go, you find your best read, you warm up, you get on stage. <laughs> and the compulsory work, Alfred Dazenclough. Oh, gosh. Prelude. <laughs> Cadence finale. Yes. In the very first note, <laughs> you walk to the stage and you play... And all that money's down the drain. You're out. You're out. You're, You're done out. for. You don't even get to note two. And I'm not even kidding. That happened back in the 90s. Oh, um, that is And so such my teacher at the time, opening. Kenneth Fisher, 
uh, was a judge. And he was talking about, um, I believe one of the other French or Belgian judges would basically say, I love it when someone misses that note because then I can read the... No, it's actually, it was Fred Hemke. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. It, it would was Fred be Hemke Fred that Hemke says, it's great notes. when that's the compulsory work because they if that D doesn't come out, I just read the paper. Oh, I'm not God, paying attention. so harsh. And I thought, that's oh, that is so, so harsh, harsh. But it's so true. Oh God, and um, right. yeah, and so like, you know, the judges, they know whether you're moving on to the next round. And so <laughs> my, so my teacher was saying oh he was God. watching, I forgot the name of the sweet old, older Belgian gentleman. It was, um, it wasn't the teacher at the, the Brussels Conservatory. It was a, an older gentleman, and he said oh, you gosh. could see his hand creeping like a spider to the bell. That would be like, ding, 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 ding. Thank you. <laughs> Merci beaucoup. Next. Go away. <laughs> so, yeah, the dancing club is one of those, like, oh. those moments. It's like, imagine if you're starting a figure skating routine with the hardest part. Yeah, you have you, to do like a triple or quadruple. Yeah, and imagine, and, and if you bust skated. on your butt, <laughs> you're, you're done. done. But imagine then you still had to skate for three minutes, knowing you're done. And so, like, it's this incredible and this whole psychology. It's this incredible going on mind oh, game. God, yeah. So, because it starts on not just a low B, it starts on a low B. Piano. Uh huh. Yeah. And and of course we have a piano. Uh, the, the actual the piano the forte. The piano instrument goes. Mm. So not only do you have to play it in tune, you have to play it softly out of nowhere. Maybe the first thing you play in a competition. And that's cruel. Yeah, you got to make sure you're you're playing as much as possible possible until the moment where you're not allowed to play. Right. So that your reed's not dry and you're right. You know, you're, so pro tip: when you whoa. walk on stage for a competition, have an entrance song. <laughs> or take a tuning note. Right. If you're allowed to do that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But then make sure it's in tune because the tuning is just to show the judges you know what you're doing. Well, you or, know the trick with that, Wally. Always wiggle your mouthpiece if you don't know or what's look going like, on. Yeah. yeah so yeah. you tune and then you always like look at your mouthpiece and pretend you're moving it even mm-hmm. if you're not. So anybody who thought you were out of tune thinks you're fixing it. And anybody who thought you were in tune is like, wow, they heard something I didn't hear. Right. Arrogance is the key is what I'm getting from you. Oh, yeah. So how do we, so I want to. <laughs> it's all show business, man. So um, a little story time. Um, Otis Murphy got second place. First runner up is in. Oh, really? Uh, maybe the second international, oh, second second round. I, and um, he, to my knowledge, I wasn't there, but to my knowledge, uh, to after the fact, I heard he just played marvelously. Of course, he's great. And I heard him preparing for that because we were at the same university. I was yeah. a freshman. He was a senior. And I used to sit outside his practice room. Because that was real creepy. No. It was, it was just... Well, at least you didn't barge in and sit there. Yeah, I did. Hey, Otis, you want to hear me play? No. Uh, he was just incredibly kind. And so I would sit at his practice room and listen to him practice. And I will say, for like 30 minutes, I would hear... Right. He would just play the opening over, note, the opening interval. And, and that over, was... And over its in, muscle memory from right. your lip and your throat. And, and he your would train that your, way. And I just remember the seriousness. Mm, he, mm, he um, yep. you know, that practice until you can't get it wrong. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's daunting. Somebody asked me once, I wish I could remember who it was so I could give them credit, but I don't. So <laughs> if I had any ideas... Someone um, wise once said... Someone wise once asked me if I had any ideas for... um things in the standard rep that could be pulled out and put into an etude book, things that are particularly difficult from our normal repertoire rather than, you know, spending our time only on etudes. Etudes are great, don't get me wrong. And and one of the suggestions I made to them, oh, use, you know, the first half of the first movement of the Desenclo Mm -hmm. to practice that low B. Very good. Because there's not a lot better than just having to play that low B over and over and over perfect every time. And it happens several times and it can't be 
good one time and you celebrate. You got to get it every single time. And that's maddening. It's maddening. But, you know, you just have to, it gets easier as you get older, frankly, because you get, you build up this muscle memory of what it feels like to play that note. But, you know, I just remember being completely terrified by that when I played that piece on my senior recital when I was at Northwestern. And that was one of the pieces that yeah. totally forced me, that and some other pieces I had played a year or two earlier than that. I think I told this story once. I played a contemporary music piece. I think it was by, um, I'm blanking on his name. I'll look it up. I, I played a, a new piece that a composer had written um, on a new music festival someplace in Indiana. And Jim Bishop, who was um, Hemke's assistant saxophone teacher, right. or maybe that's not the right title for him, but you know what I'm saying. He worked with Hemke at North Assistant Western. to the teacher. Whatever. He was the other, the other, sadly, we called him that. I'm sorry, Jim <laughs> Bishop, because I love him dearly. He was the other saxophone teacher at Northwestern in addition to Fred Hemke, and sometimes we had lessons with Mr. Bishop, and he was great. I mean, he is a great teacher and a great saxophonist. Why are you but winking at up, me? Susan's yeah, winking. Stop it. I was not. He came up to me after a performance, and some of my friends were standing around saying, oh, great job, blah, blah, blah. And he came up to me, and he said, Sue Fancher, you need to work on your low note attacks. And he turned and walked away. And my friends were like, oh, that wasn't very nice and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, hmm, he just did me a huge favor because he came up and honestly gave me... Wait, he said that in front of your friends? Yeah. What an ass hat. Well, but I I filed that away and I went home and guess what I did? Jim Bishop. Private, dude, in private. Well... Jim Bishop, you I need think, to work on your tact. I think he knew I could take it. All right. I could take Fair it. Fair enough. I was, I was fine. I was just like, oh, okay, I guess I'd better work on my low-note attacks. Hey, you have to have a pretty tough skin in this business. Hemke would look at us sometimes and say, really? Can't you play any better than that? That, that okay. Well. I mean, or... <sighs> He would go, take off his glasses. You can't see this because it's not a video. You take off his glasses, rub his eyes, and go, okay, let's see. I mean, if, if you can't take it really. It, I know. You know, just. I like, I, I will say it used to be that way where like you people would just like, get out of my office, don't come back to it, you'll be better. I mean, yeah. that was like the, the, we, the vibe oh, yeah. in the 80s and 90s. Oh, yeah. I kind of we don't mind do now. Anymore. Nowadays, if someone did that, like if I were in the office with a. Uh, Fred Hib- a living yeah. professor like Fred Himke, yeah. and they said, can't you play it better than him? I'm like, I hope so. That's why I'm going 80 grand in debt for you to help me do it. <laughs> I, well, as if I, looked, I had thought faster, yeah, I as, would have been like, well, yeah, I'm taking out student loans so you can help me. <laughs> I said that in a, in a big band rehearsal when I looked oh, at, so at the professor running the big band rehearsal when I my doctorate because I was primary classical player that wanted yeah. to learn jazz. And I said, well, what is this chord? How do I play this chord? I had a little solo section. He's yeah. like, you, you don't know what that is? I said, no, and I'm paying you to tell me. So how do I play this chord? <laughs> well, that's the difference between then and now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's there's maybe some some positive to both of that. I think I, <laughs> I completely all, agree. <laughs> I agree. We need to yeah. balance between seeing the the students thinking of themselves as customers. Yes. Because they could turn into a bunch and of And they need to think for themselves and, and figure stuff right. out. Like people will say to me sometimes, and this is fine because they are paying me big bucks at Duke. I mean that, that is an expensive school to go to. Right. You know? And so if the student says, well, can you help me figure out how to address this problem? I absolutely do my best to help them come up with a, an exercise or some way to address it. But when I was a student, what was really great was I learned that I could make up an exercise. I could figure out, okay, how can I bridge from something I can do to 
fixing this problem. And so I made up exercises for working on low note attacks. Yeah. Good. We talked about bridging from success. I love that expression. Wally's That's bridges yours. to success. Uh, let me bridges say right. to Wally's success bridges to success. To success. I, I always have translated in my brain to bridge from success. So I'm very I inconsistent, so it's possibly I, I've said no. No, no, I think I just misquoted Trademark you. pending. But, okay. But you take something you can do, and, then, and you yeah. try to extend it to the thing you're having trouble with. You know with. who I got that from? Who? You don't, I don't know why I answered the question. Um, it was a saxophonist at University of Georgia, where I did my bachelor's, and Otis Murphy was there. Her name was Ruth Calder or Colgrove. I don't remember her maiden name at the time. Yeah. She had one of the most sweet, beautiful alto tones I've ever heard. Oh. And she told me, because I, I her palm keys were just to die for. Oh, wow. And and I just thought, oh, how do what you do that? What did you do? And yeah. she said, well, I take a note I really like. And it was, if I remember correctly, biz B flat with octave key. And yeah, it's a sweet note because it's a yeah. strong overtone with the full tube. And she said, and then I slur up and I try to keep going higher, higher to the next note to make that previous note sound like as beautiful as the one before it. And rather than just going oh, up yeah. a scale or holding the note. And so she was always referencing that beautiful note and making the note above it. Smart. And I thought like, I mean, yes, it's simple. And yes, maybe you're thinking, well, duh. But like, uh, not a lot of people practice that way. No, if you like really make a decision, okay, I'm going to play that B flat. Then I'm going to play... A high D, palm key D, and make it sound as beautiful as that B flat right. and then E flat. That's not, yeah, that's not super obvious. That's it really, that, really did. I mean, great. it's obvious now because yeah. you, you you said it, but it, yeah. it's not obvious. Before and I try to keep that out. that same sensation yeah. that the vibrating sensation, feeling that resonance in the body. Ah, it sounds right. silly, but um, I watched no. a recent Disney video with um. Oh, I'll come back to it. That, that'll be yeah. a, a subject for another time. We're talking yeah. about vibrations in Beethoven and the stick in his teeth. Anyway, I mean, that's not a joke. That's like for seriousness. Right. Yeah, the yeah, importance yeah, yeah. of feeling vibrations yeah. as musicians, not making music an abstract. Um, so how do we get over that fear of missing that low B? You just you well, said it. Well, of course, the cheeky answer is going to be the truth, which is you just got to keep practicing it. Uh-huh. But you got to make it, you got to you got to play it the way you really want it to be over and over and over. Well, how do you get there? Well, what if you, can you play... Can you play a, a perfect um, entrance like you want on an F? Well, yeah. why don't you start with that? You know, do you go ta da da on an F? Yep. You know. Oh, so, well, should I? Should I not? <laughs> <laughs> so try to get a good one on F. So I would practice air attacks down there yeah. a lot. So just get the tongue out of there altogether. And, and honestly, yeah, if the tongue is done correctly, it's it's basically an air attack. I yeah. mean, it's well, you hear it as just. You shouldn't hear the tongue. Not really. Yeah. No. So make sure you can do an air attack. And if you can't do an air attack on a low B, we'll start on an F. Can you do an air attack on a low F? I'll bet you can. Then E. Yeah. Then E flat. And over and over and over. And then try, after you get the note going, so say you go F. I don't have perfect perfect pitch. So if you play an F, ah, da, da, da. So start it with the air and then try to do the lightest kind of D-ish mm-hmm. tongue with the as close to the tip, but with as little tongue touching the reed as possible, and then stop and then try to get the first attack, which is the hard one on the saxophone. Mm-hmm. It's not the second, third, fourth, hundredth, and get that to sound like the second or third attack that you did with the very, very light tongue, and then see if you can start like that. If you can't, go back to an air attack. And yeah. then when you get good at enough, try an E. Right, because you can't get a good tongued note if you don't have the air velocity. Exactly. So the air attack first. That is brilliant. And the and the the tongue is just a crutch if your ear is not correct. Absolutely, yeah. Well, a crutch and a liability. 
it just covers up the fact that you didn't have enough air pressure. Yeah. And throw position right in, lip pressure right in, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You have to do everything right to play a low B the way you have to to start the prelude of the, the dozen clow. And here, pro tip, if you are using your air correctly on your low B, then maybe you'll use your air better for the entire range of the saxophone. <laughs> well, that's why I have, and the rest of the range of the saxophone will sound better. So it's worth working on, even if you're not playing the dozen. That's why I have all my students, the very first thing they do every day is exercise zero. They start on low B flat. I love it. Yeah. Just to love get it. that whole big tube yeah. going. Do exercise zero. Hey, Sue, do you hear that? Do you hear the gentle rustling oh. sound? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's the, the mailbag. Yay! Yes, the mailman's here. <laughs> Hi, Larry. How are you? I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, well, let's get the mail, Larry. Okay, letter from a listener. <laughs> USM, insert some uh, rustling sounds right here of a letter. <laughs> I'm kidding. Our editor. Um, uh, this is from uh, Dr. Brian. Uh, Dr. Brian, medical doctor, not a... Okay. Um, um, not, not, okay. Not, not a... Um, the saxophone doctor. Yeah, he's we know actually it. a real doctor. Okay. Very bright guy. Excellent. We always uh, say a doctor. Somewhat new to you. the saxophone. <laughs> oh, Inquisitive. Okay. And just um, fantastic student. Wonderful. So, uh, question. As much as I practice with TE Tuner, do you know what that is? Tonal T-E Energy. It's an app. TE Tuner. No, it's I an, don't it's know. It's an app. It. It's one of All those right. popular tuning apps. Uh, anybody who's, everybody's using TE everybody Tuner. Everybody know it. No. It's an app you tune, and when it's in tune, you get a green smiley face. If you're out of tune, oh, you get a- I've seen yeah. students using that. Right, right. Yeah. So, okay. So, the question. <laughs> it just would make me laugh, and then I'd go out of tune. <laughs> <laughs> It's very cute. Yeah, that's very cute. I, I always stop playing. Well, look at you, Mr. Smart. Yeah. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? <laughs> there he is. How? Positive, oh, he's gone. Positive reinforcement. Right. That's nice. As yeah. much as I practice with TE tuners, some notes are consistently sharp and some are flat. In faster passages, how do I, how do competent saxophones make adjustments and stay in tune? Is it a matter of practicing to develop an ear and good habits? Or are there any tips to exercises to help? It's a great question, and it, meaning like he knows he needs to take some time to bring the notes in tune when he's playing slowly. But in faster passages, and this is where we can pull back the curtain and show how the sausage is made. So when you're wow, playing- Wow, that's such a great question. Right. And there's just uh, so much to unpack there, right? I, I, I tell you, my adult students who are just brilliant people and from all walks of life, They're they ask great. these questions like, Yep, oh, that's man. sort of the crux of the whole thing. We've spent hours and hours and hours and hours in a practice room. So yeah. when we're practicing slow, um, I actually don't recommend using a tuner. Here with me. Uh, bear with me. Uh, not the visual tuner, practicing with drones. Yeah. And so I added in addition to my practice studio here at the Saxophone Academy headquarters, Sonnenot Laboratories, I, I bought a Steinway, a little baby, the smallest Steinway made. A friend of mine is a restorer. And he got a, what they call a cottage Steinway. It's the smallest cabinet, mid-century, modern, cool. It's so beautiful. It's and he's like, well, it just came in. And if you want it, you, I'll, I'll sell it to you. you know. And it doesn't take up, you know, half your Yeah, room. it is beautiful. Yeah. But what my favorite thing to do is sit down, put my foot on the pedal, put the pedal to the metal, baby, and play a, a fifths or a triad. Oh, yeah. And then play with tuning drones. But I like to do yep. it with the natural tuning drones. But I, so Brian, I would say, first of all, don't practice with tonal energy tuner because that's training our eyes more than our ears. So how do you practice intonation and what do you do when it's fast, Sue? I do both. So one, one way that uh, has been really great for practicing tuning, it was totally tedious, but I'm, I'm married to a saxophone player and we met um, studying saxophone. So we would t- trade off um, playing a note on the saxophone, having the other person play 
triads or just playing up the scale and tuning every note and kind of taking turns and so effectively using the other player as a drone. So you married your husband as a drone. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. If you don't marry, might, uh, if you don't marry a collaborative <laughs> pianist, marry marry a drone. I love your idea of doing that. When I was learning Ben Johnson's piece. Ponder nothing. I would work with the drone because it's da 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 dee da 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 da. It's this old hymn tune that was supposed to be in just intonation with the with the bottom note. And so I would practice that over and over with a you know a metronome drone, which is super ugly, but it worked. You know, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I used to practice with the. We had one of those like Peterson strobo tuners yep. that had like the super loud sine tone drone. Yep. And yeah, you can pretend you're a bagpipe. It's fun. I do also practice um, with my tuner because it's helpful um, to practice that um, equal tempered-ish tuning for when I'm playing with piano. And just so I know, compared to like equal tempered tuning, where the tendencies are on my saxophone. And plus it shows me, you know, the little needle. I have one with the little needle, the cheap little cord thing. We'll, we'll get the one with the smiley face. No, but you know, it just, it's so cute. It Maybe I should, but does it have a sad face when you're out of tune? It, it looks, well, see, no, it looks concerned. Oh, if you're really uh, out of tune, it does the questioning face. Oh, like, no. look at like, what? It's throwing shades. Like, sure I don't even know what not? pitch this is. I'm, I'm going to do my, my dumb little thing, you know. And, and this way I don't have my phone sitting on my stand falling off and breaking my phone. This is a little $20 Korg I like well, I like my phone nowhere near my practice area. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that so. too, because ding, oh wait, ding, blah, 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 all these little like things. I know you can turn them off, but you know, yeah. No, anyway. I mean like yeah. uh, I, I really love my practice area to be analog. Yeah. I really do. Totally. It's a vibe. Yeah, man. And, and I and like my little Korg. It costs 20 bucks. I've had it for like 10 years. If I drop it and break it, and it's I will say, bucks, seeing I'll a needle rather than the colors and the I numbers, like I agree very much. Well, and I see how much. Yeah. I see how much. If and I'm, the visual if, representation versus 15 cent sharp, which you may think like is like, oh, God, 15 cents. It's not cents. that much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean. Well, yeah. Okay. It's not, it's not yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I can figure out, I can figure out, okay, what do I have to do to make that needle absolutely, you know, zero right there. Standing, right. <laughs> right. Standing like not any sharp, not any flat, you know, any of that. And so the other thing that is coming to my mind is that Lone Dex, forced us to play um, using some slow pieces, using all of the correction fingerings for the various notes on the saxophone. So I learned which key to add to a G to make it not flat, which key to add to a G sharp, which key to add to an A. And so I learned the tendency of every single note on the saxophone and to have muscle memory to know exactly which keys to lower or raise mm -hmm. as needed every single note on the saxophone. He would make us play a slow melody using those correction fingers, and we would learn how to make that tuner needle absolutely vertical for all of those. And right. the beauty of that is that eventually your ear learned where the notes needed to be to be in tune rather than um, learning from the saxophone what tuning was. That's a very good point because the saxophone will train you to hear things wonky. Yes, like uh -huh. students tend to play a D with the octave key quite sharp and they don't know it's sharp because that's just where the saxophone puts it. Mm -hmm. It's sharp. And so then, ha, lo and behold, after a while, you could play all those notes perfectly in tune without any of those correction fingerings because mm -hmm. your body just figured out how to make them play in tune and your ear just heard where you they hear them correctly. To be. You hear and them so, correctly coming out of your saxophone. Yeah. And so it's is there a little a good bit book of with the all corrective of fingerings? This. Is um probably. 
That's very. <laughs> I think that Lone Dex is. Um, um, Hello, Hello, Mr. Sachs probably has them in there, which is a really dumb title for a book, but a very a very good book. It's actually a really excellent book with a whole bunch of interesting information. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just light reading. Just read a chapter, yeah. but when you go to bed, <laughs> correct the fingerings. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, I mean, and I believe that too, he, he also delves into <laughs> some acoustic issues, or am I thinking of a different one? Well, there's one is, I think tremolis I'm the one is my voice. and quarter tones. And, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... You know, you probably could um, just Google tuning correction fingerings for the saxophone. Right. And if it's not there, tell Dr. Wally and he'll he'll make a video about it. He's looking at me like, no, I you got know, some better of, topics yeah, than and the, that. They will work so. on most modern handles. I will say if you have a Busher True Tone, the corrective fingerings aren't as helpful as a priest and a, an animal sacrifice. Oh, yeah. It's going to be different depending on the saxophone. That's actually true. Yeah. And, and really... I'm thinking about times when I actually use the correction fingerings, not so much any more, although I do, especially if I'm playing in quartet, they're helpful. Mm -hmm. And if I'm playing with piano, they're quite helpful. Right. Yeah. I agree. You know. But let's get to uh, Dr. Brian's yeah. question. When you're oh, playing fast, to, are you correcting the intonation? <laughs> I know. When you're playing fast, are you correcting the intonation of every note? Well, I would like to think yes, but I'm not adding correction fingerings and stuff like that at that tempo. Right. But I have practiced those licks slowly and listening to the tuning of those notes. Um, I would like to say that I'm playing my licks in tune because I've practiced them slowly, but the truth is they probably go by quickly enough mm -hmm. that you're just only going to notice like mostly the notes that are on the beat or on the end. And, and, uh, and when you land on a longer note, yeah. I don't think those landing points yeah. all as well that yeah. starts and ends well. I think so, most or any honestly. like major rungs of the ladder, melodically speaking. I mean, if, if you've they got, do a Shankarian analysis, if you're playing, if you're playing quick sixteenth note um, licks, and you're going in and out of like a D with the octave key to an open C sharp, I'm going to pick up on your open C sharp sounding a little bad and being out of tune, and that's why we use some different fingerings in passages. Right. 16th passages, you know, so if you have like a really flat note that's going in and out a lot, somebody might pick up on that. But by and large, if you're going da 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 da, da and you go through an open C sharp, I'm not going to hear Right. It. We kind of use the yeah. voicing that's the average for the grouping of the 16ths. Yeah. And as we go to the register, we kind of get the best average voicing for that area. Yeah. And you know what? If you're unsure, so record yourself doing it and then listen back and see, do you notice it being out of tune? And if you do, you got to fix yeah. that note. And if you don't, it's okay. Yeah. I think. Yeah. What do it, you think? I I think. I, th I think uh yeah, I, I you know, I would like to hear from our listeners. Yeah. How, how, like at what tempo what do you do start you adding corrective fingers? Right. Yeah. Or do you add corrective fingers? Eighth notes probably if you have a note that's really flat on yeah. your horn, you might. On my Yamaha, I have to add the corrective uh so middle B on my Yamaha is is flatter than uh, something that's yeah. very flat. An yeah, analogy did not come to me. So, so something that's flat, flatter than a crap, a crap, a crap, a, a crap, a crap. All the things in the world to think of. Yeah, it's flat. I'm hungry. Okay. It's, if we're gonna, well, right, we'll start this up so we can, get, <laughs> no. so Sue can get breakfast. So my my middle B on my Yamaha, which I adore, is very flat. Flat as a crap, and so I add the side B flat key, RSK one, ah, mm -hmm. and that would bring it basically in tune. And then it's the how slow does it need to be? Before right. you know, you before use you that. don't need to do that. And you're right. Sometimes yeah. eighth notes are 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 <laughs> slow enough. Where yeah. da da da, I might need it. 
Well, and if you're playing in a quartet and you're playing alto saxophone and you've got this beautiful slow melody, even in eighth notes, mm -hmm. and say you've got a G, no octave key G, which tends to be quite flat, especially in the saxophone quartet flooding says flooding setting because let's say because the average pitch of that ensemble it's maybe sitting a little high <laughs> it's possible possible yeah, it's possible and so you might have to add that you know that's that chromatic f sharp key mm -hmm. even in a slow passage just so you don't you don't end up sounding so i've had to add the side b flat key to let me ask you a, a question. B in the so alto. that that f sharp key you're yeah what are you, what do you, because uh, I got, uh, someone got a little, little persnickety oh, on, no. on a YouTube comment. I what? call, so what do you call that key? Well, Lundex calls it TF. I don't care what Lundex calls it because it makes no Chromatic sense. Chromatic F sharp. Some people call it side F sharp. Right. A lot of people. So I yeah. call it a side F sharp. Alternate and, F sharp. And, and, and a commenter yeah. on YouTube said, I've never heard that in my life. And I was like, oh. I've heard it all my life. He's like, oh, yeah. I've always heard it called a fork fingering. And I was like, I've oh, never yeah, heard I it. Oh, I forgot that one too. Well, that's yeah. an old school thing. Yeah. And then they, then they did the name dropping. I studied with so-and-so and he well, called it a fork fingering. That's I was like, fine. First of all, it's not fine. I don't care. They were, <laughs> but I was thinking like, all right, but the reason they called it a fork fingering is, is, Am I using part of this podcast just to get back for sticking a YouTube comment? Yes. No, in, in seriousness. It's the way of the internet, Wally. It's the way. I, I, tough. I, I People maybe, are not nice. Right. And I was thinking like, you know, it was just, they were acting like I was crazy. And I started questioning myself. I was like, I, I never called it a fork fingering. The reason the old school players do it is because incorrectly clarinetists called it a fork fingering. But that's still not correct. They're doing it because of basically recorder fingerings. Where you know you you skip one of the notes and, and finger it right. that way. So even adding a side key, it's not the same thing as a true fork fingering on an oboe bassoon or a recorder. Yeah. So that's the reason they call it a fork fingering. So whoever it was on the I'll internet, it F -sharp, it made me right? try to think I was crazy. <laughs> side F sharp because it's a side key. I usually call it side B flat, side C, side F sharp because yeah. it's all around. Don't over call there. it a fork fingering because it's not. Even though your fingers, you're skipping a note. You're actually opening a key, not closing a key, which is what the fork finger is doing. So there. So there. But if you said fork F sharp, I wouldn't have gone after you. So We're going to edit that out, Sue. Are you? Because it's too nasty. <laughs> it's no, too nice. I, it's, it's, I'm just saying don't, don't disagree with my detractors. <laughs> you know? Uh, I, sometimes I have the passcode that allows me to log into this platform. <laughs> so help me, Sue. <laughs> sometimes I'll refer to the... Um, high E key as an E palm key, even though you don't play that with your palm, but because it's in like D, E flat, E, F, it's in the chromatic passage with okay, the palm keys. Okay, you psychopath, keys. that's RSK3. I know, right? So I call them, okay, very <laughs> quick, and then we'll, then we'll say goodbye. That's Rousseau's Well, I think it's just basic system. human decency. <laughs> so they're side keys. One is on the right hand, one is on the left hand. They are in order of... It does actually make yeah, sense. Yeah, so RSK, one, two, three from the bottom makes yeah. a whole lot of sense. LSK, your side keys. One, two, three. One, two, three. And so, yeah. So Londex calls them with these TA things, which yeah. mean... Side, a, side B flat. But why the TA? Side, what does that even mean? Uh, Tastin key, I don't know. It, it's some French thing. Right. So I, I saw that. that and I said, huh. And then I immediately forgot it and thought, "Yeah, you know what? It was so pounded into my brain. America. The year I was there. <laughs> Well, so what do you call the high F sharp key then? Uh, high F sharp. <laughs> and, and the high G key on the Actually, uh, I think it's RSK it's four. Four and then five for the G on the soprano. Oh, we never got that far because back when I was learning those fingerings, we you didn't, didn't have, have we didn't yeah. have the high Gs. We, we didn't, didn't have, have that technology. It. I know. You know, when I started college, uh, email was the yeah. only thing the internet was for, and it was basically in a DOS shell. Yeah. And if you know what a DOS shell is, yeah. go take some Advil about. because your oh. joints hurt. <laughs>
<laughs> and get some fiber if you know what a DOS shell is, because we all need it. Yeah, that little DOS prompt that would greet you when you turned on your yeah. computer and a blank screen. Yeah. Ah, the good old days. The good old days. Well, let's keep the good old days uh, going with more quartet well, music. I hope we helped Dr. Brian at all. <laughs> if not, he'll let us know. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so good to talk to you. Oh, my God. Uh, it's so fun, as always. Yeah, and I'll see you next week. Yeah, see you um, next week. We're going to talk about more exciting stuff when we make it up on the drive over. We will. <laughs> hey, take care. Take care, everyone. And go, go practice. practice.